welcome to episode 11 of the Indie by Design podcast, the show about game design and game designers. In each weekly episode, we sit down with interesting people to talk about them, their work, and their outlook on games. The Indie by Design podcast is brought to you by Stace Harmon and John Robertson. You can reach us on Twitter at Indie by Design, via facebook.com forward slash Indie by Design, and visit us at IndieByDesign.net for books, podcasts, and more. You can also take a peek at what we're doing over at patreon.com slash indie by design, where you can help us bring to life a whole host of ideas for additional content and directly help enhance our podcast offerings. This episode of the podcast is hosted by me, Stace Harmon, and features Ian Dallas, studio head and creative director of Giant Sparrow, the Santa Monica-based developer of Unfinished Swan and What Remains of Edith Finch. If you'd like to see Edith Finch in action, be sure to check out our complete three-part no-commentary playthrough by searching Indie by Design on YouTube. Ian Dallas and Giant Sparrow state that their goal is to make the world a stranger, more interesting place, and with their first two titles they have certainly realised that ongoing ambition. Both Unfinished Swan and Edith Finch are games that present striking, stylishly presented visual narratives, and that feature poignant tales with ample room for personal interpretation. Their highly subjective stories make for games that will mean very different things to different people, but regardless of your personal take, both offer an interesting space to explore. It's with this notion in mind that we begin this week's hour-long chat with Ian, discussing how we as players determine the boundaries of our virtual playgrounds so as to better understand the freedom of our interactive journeys. Yeah, I mean, I think about it a little bit like the way that rats uh, work, you know, where, you know, rats do this thing where they hug the edges of things, uh, which I found out recently is because rats can only see about 12 inches. Their oh, eyes okay. just don't focus very well. Yeah. And so for them, it's just like, you know, like the, the safety of, of the known spaces. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think players definitely have a similar tendency to want to kind of, you know, it's almost like when you're in a labyrinth and you just want to like turn left all of the time or mm-hmm. whatever, like, you know, to find the boundaries of it, mm. uh, you know, or to get to the highest point to, you know, survey it is, you know, kind of a similar version of that, of just trying to like understand a space by, you know, starting with the unknown and then like chipping away at it, like mm. getting, you know, pushing back the fog of war. Mm. And that, was that something that you found with, with Unfinished Swan? And, and if so, was that something that then in any way that you're aware of kind of consciously affected the design of, of Edith Finch? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's part of, you know, this kind of underlying tension as a designer where we're making games that are, you know, very specifically about the unknown. You know, it's about, like, how do you create a space where players feel, uh, you know, a little bit marooned, yeah. uh, like they're out of their comfort zone, they're in this, uh, you know, kind of unfamiliar landscape, uh, and then you know, what do players do in those situations? You know, I think in, in The Unfinished Swan, it was a much more, you know, overt version of that where you're in this completely white landscape uh, and you have no idea of what might be, you know, around the corner. Mm. And the thing that, you know, we learned on that game was that there's this kind of counterintuitive experience that players have where um, they, like, if you give them too much space they kind of exhaust themselves mm. it's like if you put out you know like a meal um you know it's just like it's too large people feel like compelled to eat it anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. so as a designer you have to kind of like adjust the portion sizes a little bit even though ostensibly you know people sit down you know to a meal and they're just like oh, i want the biggest thing i'm so hungry right now <laughs> but they actually kind of get themselves into trouble uh and you know, in, in The Unfinished Swan, you know, we found that people would just get, like, exhausted when there was too much room to wander around mm. uh, because there's kind of two things that are going on, I think. Uh, like, one is the desire to just, like, explore for its own sake. And then two, and this is actually maybe the more stronger, you know, uh, part of the psyche, is the desire to figure out what's going on. Like, what is it that as a player I have to do? Like, what are what is the system asking of me which Mm. is not obvious in a game like this where like normally it would be okay i you know i have to kill this guy or i have to collect you know these you know herbs or whatever but it you know in these games it's not obvious like what you have to do that's part of the game right it's figuring these things out Mm. so the thing that we found was that 
by giving players more explicit goals, it actually encouraged them to relax a little bit. And then it counterintuitively felt more like they were exploring, like they had the room once they understood where they had to go. Mm. Then it was more like, okay, I know I, I'm supposed to go there, but I am choosing to explore this other space. And I'm now, you know, like I've switched modes and I'm in this kind of, you know, exploratory wandering kind of like, you know, experiential phase mm -hmm. where if you don't give them the sense of where the ultimate objective is and in, in the unfinished one, it was, you know, these yellow footprints that you'd follow or, or things on the horizon that were filled out that wasn't all white. Uh, then they never kind of switch over and then they're always kind of on tenterhooks, uh, you know, a little tense about these things, which mm -hmm. generally is not the feeling that we wanted. Like we didn't want players to be concerned about what they were meant to be doing at a, at a fundamental level because they never then switch over into this kind of like place where they can relax and, you know, and enjoy what's going on. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's, there are, I think several, several things there in, in that answer that, um, that, bring up more questions and one of those things i think was the the whole idea of a portion size and of course mm -hmm. you know Edith finch is is very an unfinished one as well to a to perhaps well to my mind at least to a lesser degree but edith finch very much so is a series of um kind of discreet but connected uh stories experiences that you could easily, if it were a you know a fifty-hour game, you could easily experience those in portions and be satisfied in each one. But I, I found I was compelled to kind of play through the entire thing in one go um, and feel it was one of those experiences. I think where I felt that I couldn't almost couldn't think too much about what was going on at the time until I'd finished it. Like I couldn't sort out how I felt about it until I'd got to the end of it. Um, and I wonder if the the stories that the individual stories within Edith Finch, um, did you have a conscious uh, conscious desire or constant conscious feeling of kind of how they would piece together? Like even the order that you experienced them in, for example, how did that sort of come about? Versus, uh, well, these they they contrast quite well, so let's just sort of put them in this order. Yeah, it was a very um, rocky process. I think mm -hmm. we didn't look at the whole thing from the beginning very much. I mean, uh, we, you know, early on, we did have a sense, I guess, maybe a year into development of the four and a half years or so that we were working on it of like, okay, here's kind of like roughly what the family is going to be like. Here's like the different generations of the family some like broad sense of, okay, each floor of the house is going to be like its own generation, for example, was an idea that came fairly early. But in terms of like which stories actually would fit in and where, uh, that was all changing quite a lot, you know, pretty late into development because the stories themselves were changing so much. And the stories, like each individual story was such a challenge uh, to get right and such you know, different challenges, mm. uh, into, you know, the controls or just the technical issues of like, how are we going to render, you know, this world onto a cloud that you see in front of you? Those kind of, you know, difficulties plagued the project for, for many years and made it so that it was all we could do to just like keep these individual stories kind of moving forward and improving and, mm. you know, kind of developing this sense of like, what is this game ultimately about? Uh, you know, I mean, it was, from the beginning, you know, a game about the sublime, right? Like that didn't change, but in terms mm -hmm. of like how you communicate that to players, like what are the tools, what do we as a team do well, all that stuff was, was really, you know, the process of discovery. And so like Lewis's story, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to be one of the first stories that you would encounter. Um, in fact, um, uh, Edie's room used to be Lewis's room. Uh, okay. It was the second story, right, that, that you would encounter. And uh, I can't remember why, but, you know, we, we moved that story around, you know, several times, uh, partly, you know, when we got a sense of how long the stories were going to be, uh, like that was a big issue. So trying to balance, you know, lengthy stories with shorter ones and, you know, especially early on, you know, I think we wanted yeah. to give players a sense of, uh, you know, roughly how big these stories were going to be. So we had one of our largest stories, Molly, 
followed by, you know, ostensibly our shortest story, uh, Odin, uh, in the Viewmaster. And, you know, just, you know, that was a concern. Mm. Uh, you know, also just kind of looking at, of course, like the overall pacing, like what, what do we think is sort of more emotionally draining, uh, <laughs> stories sort of give and take and, you know, trying to balance those things mm-hmm. out. So like Barbara's story, you know, is a little bit on the sillier end, uh, you know, which felt like a good, kind of middle story to have uh and you know like walter's story just kind of placed itself right because that was uh you know because it was located in the bunker and was this kind of like in between story uh you know it made sense that that was you know kind of where it it fell uh but all the other stories you know also just got kind of tuned and adjusted and yeah there was no master plan it was just like oh this this feels a little bit better let's you know, encourage players to do this one before that one. Um, And I think, you know, kind of what you're talking about in terms of experiencing the game and wanting to just like keep moving forward. uh, You know, we had initially expected that the game would be something that uh, people would play over a couple of sittings, that it Mm -hmm. was just things were so crazy and intense that, you know, people wouldn't want to, uh, you know, go through all those things. But in the end, you know, because we ended up, shortening a lot of things and simplifying stuff, uh, you know, I think ultimately now the game seems to be experienced best when it's just one, one go and you get this mm. kind of whole thing that is, uh, you know, there, there's so much that by the end of the game you kind of have forgotten about mm. that, you know, hopefully when players think back, it has this kind of quality of you know, kind of dreamlike where it's like, oh, and that happened and then I was an owl and then, you know, this thing. Uh, and I think that, you know, something that's very positive, right? That feels like what the game is kind of about. Uh, a lot of our efforts in the last year or so of, of production were, you know, trying to reduce friction places where, you know, players would get stuck or confused and, you know, kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier with the unfinished swan, uh, you know, it doesn't really help our purposes to have people uh, stub their toe on things and, you know, get caught on like, Oh, I just didn't notice that thing. And so, we tried to make all of the, you know, the spaces very um, obvious in terms of what your objective was. Like, okay, this is what is going to now take me out of this room. But, you know, for players that want to spend time and, you know, browse around, hopefully then they're sort of empowered to do that. But mm-hmm. I think what we found is that that's more of like a second playthrough for a lot of people. The first time around, there's just this kind of like, I don't know, drum beat or something that gets faster and faster of like, oh, I want to know what happened to this person and that person. And, uh, you know, it's only probably on the second playthrough for a lot of people that they'll want to really just relax and, and kind of take in all of these rooms. Yeah. But I, like, I think for, for me, it was, it was a, um, it wasn't like a race to the end. It wasn't a, oh, I just, <laughs> I want to get to the end of this, of this video game. It was very much mm-hmm. like when you're reading a book and, you're kind of compelled. You're just like, just pushed through the story. You can't actually stop reading it or experiencing it or playing the game in this instance. And it has the effect of kind of, yeah, I think you're right. You get to the end and it's, you can forget some of the stuff that you've experienced, but it adds up to this entire feeling about the game even if you don't necessarily you can't necessarily pinpoint the specific some of the specific parts of it um mm-hmm. the one of the the most striking things though even irrespective of kind of whether i could remember specific um elements and any the every part of every story was the the tension that resulted in doing knowing that each character was going to die at the end of the, the story that I was experiencing and knowing that or feeling like I was in some way um, complicit in that because my my actions as a player were bringing them closer to that end even though in the story thematically all of these things have already happened it felt like this was something that I was like kind of like my success in achieving what I was <laughs> meant to be doing as a player was helping <laughs> to kill these characters and that's you know some of those stories obviously that's a that's quite a powerful thing to feel about anybody but some of those stories are particularly um powerful in that regard <laughs> if you are in some way com- complicit in you know in in 
a baby dying or something like that, particularly if you, you know, if that's relevant to your own life. And that it's a really, that's a very powerful thing to experience. But yeah, I think that that's actually like a, a great example of something that we had no idea would be there until mm. we had a couple of these stories kind of on their feet. And, um, you know, like I think Gregory's story is a great example of something that, you know, for a long, long time just feels like, um, like a mechanic prototype mm, where mm. you've got this dog swimming around a bathtub and it's jumping on things and there's rubber duckies and it's just like inherently feels, you know, really cute and playful. Uh, but, you know, because we had done a couple other stories before that one, uh, you know, like Molly's and Lewis's story, for example, being you know, some of the first ones that we'd really done. And we got into a point where those started to feel really like emotionally powerful for players. Mm. Uh, you know, we'd identified exactly, you know, that, that moment you're talking about, which, you know, like I talk about, uh, I talked about with the rest of the team as being like kind of the canonical Finchian moment is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a place where you are marching triumphantly towards your own doom. Yeah. And I think part of what makes that really powerful is that that's kind of the structure of video games. Like you as a player are in this weird state where you want this thing to happen, but you also know that it's going to be horrible for the people, mm. you know, that it happens to. Mm. And that's something that's true. You know, I think of all stories, really, like we don't watch stories about good things happening to good people. Like that's just not interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but in a game, there's like a whole extra layer to that where you were, you know, not only are you, you know, bringing this thing into existence by being an audience member, you know, and, and paying for your ticket or whatever, mm. but you're also like, you know, controlling this thing, like you're, you're embedded in it. Mm. And that kind of complicity, uh, you know, was, was just like a very good match with what these stories were already about. You know, these, we knew that the stories were going to be about people dying, but we mm. didn't mm. know until we'd done a couple of them that, you know, there was this, synchronicity with the experience of being a player and being kind of dropped into this world and the way that, you know, you, you want to explore in the same way that Molly does. Like Molly wants to find, you know, what, what is out there. Uh, and it's not hard to get players to want to do that. We're kind of working with the grain there yeah. of, of going with people's natural, ten, natural impulses. And the kind of culmination of all of that is, you know, this place where even though this, you know, person is going to die, you as a player, actually, there's part of you that wants that to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's that means you've uh, you've kind of achieved your goal. Not not deliberately. You're not deliberately trying to kill this person, but you. It means you've you've ticked a box. You've succeeded. You've got your little achievement in. Yeah, I've got to the end of that that section, and that's a. I wonder then, like, how much. How far did you take that with um, with like tweaking and playtesting and then like really turning the screws on players uh, emotional gauges? Like were there was there conversations about kind of how much do we how much do we uh, kind of draw this moment out? How much do we because because there are moments where you think, oh, this is going to be the point. This is where something's going to happen. And it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And you have these real, <laughs> like that becomes not exhausting, but it becomes, it's, it's, uh, something that you're invested in. It becomes draining in, in the right way. Like you, because you're just so engaged with it. It's like, phew. And you almost get into this idea of this full sense of hope that, oh, maybe it's not going to happen. And then, <laughs> of course it does. So kind of how much did you, did you guys play with, with that? And, you know, the idea of, I guess, torturing the player. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we ever wanted to torture players, uh, <laughs> you know, but we did watch a lot of people's reactions in playtests to try mm. to gauge, like, how much darkness are players bringing themselves to this? And mm. yeah, I think we, we found pretty early on that it was a lot, right? That people, yeah. we didn't need to emphasize any of the macabre, you know, elements like we just needed to do a good idea, good job of clearly establishing what these characters wanted and what the risks were. Mm. And then we could just kind of sit back and let, you know, it's more powerful if we let players build up the rest of themselves. And, mm. you know, I think the, the biggest place where that, you know, comes becomes apparent is with the music where, you know, a lot of times because the music also came in a bit late, 
we already knew kind of where we were tonally with players and we knew where we wanted to go. So usually that was like, oh, things feel a little bit too dark and we'd like for the music to kind of lift things up. And it's, you know, music is one of those few things that comes in at the end, but can make a really big emotional difference. A mm. lot of other things, like if you want to completely redo the way that the character controls or the way that things animate, you know, it's a much bigger uh, challenge. But with music mm. and like fine tune uh, those moments. And so, you know, there's a lot of very hopeful uh, music in the game, partly because, you know, we were coming in a little bit heavy otherwise, and the music was a way for us to, you know, kind of subconsciously uh, raise it up. And like, I think Lewis's, the end of Lewis's story is a good example of something where, uh, you know, we just wanted it to be as triumphant as possible. Mm. Uh, because we also, you know, we didn't want players to feel like they had failed uh, because, you know, they hadn't, they're, they're playing out these stories and they've, experienced something and they've you know shared hopefully like a, a really nice moment uh and it's not like you know anyone is going to live forever like these people are just dying maybe a little bit early mm. but you know we we tried to also structure every story so that it felt like a victory for the person in that story so they're all people they're all stories basically of people getting what they want but not necessarily in the way that they expected it so even though every story ends with the death it's not hopefully something that feels depressing like it, there is a victory in there um that you as a player you know can kind of share hmm. i think that's definitely i can relate to that personally from from playing the game i think i can relate to, to that to to some extent i do i feel like in a in a uh, a weird way or a perverse way that the the stories that ended the or that left me feeling the most positive um would have been something like lewis's story in the fishery where it seems like there's going to be a an accident at any moment and then actually it ends with kind of a more of a an affirmation of his choices and that felt more in some in a in a strange way given what that choice <laughs> ends up being but in a strange way that felt more empowering and more i felt more at peace with that because that was a oh it wasn't an accident it was a, a deliberate act even though that deliberate act is quite a speaks of a very um dark mindset perhaps and mm -hmm. uh, that it just yeah i mean you know this is one of those things i guess that different people are going to react differently to it which is one of the brilliant things about something like edith finch and unfinished one as well that it has that room for interpretation and that um, a, a degree of ambiguity, which I think is quite a difficult thing to achieve in a video game. It's it's quite hard to to leave that room for people's imaginations to fill in the blanks. Um, yeah, and I think you know one of the things that has come up a lot lately is you know the idea that this is a, a you know like a story game uh, that people mm. describe it as a game you know a, that's focused on story, and I don't really see it that way. I mm. see it much more as like a game about experience yeah. and about yeah. what it feels like to be these people at these times and kind of trying out different perspectives. Uh, and that ambiguity, you know, is a, a big part of something that is, you know, not, not really about a message or like a final conclusion um, in the way that like a story, like it's something that was written with a more definite point of view mm. that it, mm. it, instead it's more of an attempt to, uh, you know, give you a chance to live out different experiences and then hopefully, you know, bring some of yourself to that. So it's not, you know, about telling people something. It's about, you know, showing them or like giving them a space uh, to think about. Mm. Yeah. And um, I, I remember I spoke to somebody a while back um a game designer who spoke about how strong an emotion remorse is in a video game because it's quite a unique thing um in terms of in terms of video games because in order to have and this is this was how they phrased it rather than how I am but it, I think it was a, a kind of a perfect summation that in order to feel remorse you have to have played some part in whatever it is that's happened so you can't feel remorse when you when you read a book or when you watch a film you can feel empathy and sadness but actual remorse at something that has happened I guess because it's tied up in the idea that 
you have caused it in some way. And again, right, right. that's that's kind of again that's kind of how I felt with with Edith Finch. That was, you know, I did. I think it was only once when I when I genuinely kind of just took my hands off of the controls and just thought about not continuing. And not, I don't think I was actually going to not continue playing, but like it was a, yeah. do I really want to see this through? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's tied into that idea of the whole remorse thing, because I knew that once I, it had happened, it, I felt like I, I couldn't take it back. Even And again, even, it's a weird thing, because thematically, all of these things have already happened. These, this is a story mm-hmm. about the past in, in some ways, and also about the, right, the present right. and the future. But it's, yeah, I, I don't know, there's, there's kind of a, a feeling, did you explore that when you were creating the game? Did you talk amongst yourselves about this, this sort of idea of... of the whole idea of remorse and, and players feeling, I guess, guilty in some way about what they were playing or because the stories were taking place in the past, did that not really kind of factor in? Yeah, I, I don't think that remorse specifically was an issue that we talked about. I think, you know, in large part because, like you're saying, this is all something that has happened in the past and mm-hmm. it's not like there are choices where players, you know, could have, taking the red pill or the blue pill or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so that specifically wasn't really something that had come up. But, you know, I think we did see that players had very different levels of experience. Or not levels, like um, very different emotional uh, takeaways or places where they got to by the end. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the sharpest places that became obvious to me was uh, when we did press days for uh, Lewis's story and mm-hmm. I would sit in a room for you know something like like eight hours and then every mm-hmm. half hour there'd be a different journalist who would come in and they would play Lewis's story for 20 minutes and then we would talk for 10 minutes and then it would be on to the next person so it was mm-hmm. almost like a mm-hmm. kind of scientific study right of uh, <laughs> how people respond to this and it you know it ran the gamut uh, there were some people who were actually speechless. You know, like they had to like put the controller down at the end of mm. it and they couldn't talk for like, you know, 10 or 20 seconds. They were mm. just, you know, sort of overcome. And there were people who were just immediately like, oh, that was, that was really fun. Uh, what else do you got? You know, it was like <laughs> actually what they were saying. And, you know, I think it just, so much of it depends on how open you are as a player to that experience and how mm. deep, you know, you connect with it. Um, and that's kind of our job as game developers, you know, to create a space where you as a player feel like you, you are rewarded for opening up that it's something that like, not only does it connect with you because like aesthetically and and all these other elements like are are kind of drawing you in, but that it's also a place that, you know, feels like it's going to be worth you, you know, being vulnerable and that there's something, you know, that you can kind of experience and learn from as a human, uh, so yeah, it's, it's been strange to see feedback, you know, online that kind of runs that same gamut of people who are saying like, oh my God, like I was so overcome with this. And other people who are just like, I didn't get it. It was fine. Yeah. <laughs> what are you people talking about? Uh, you know, and it's the same game, but it's just different players, you know, and they have these very different experiences, uh, you know, based on how much they're willing to bring to it. Mm. That, it reminds me of something, um, I may, well, I don't know, I may not be. I'm, I, I'm assuming I'm going to be the first person to compare what remains of Edith Finch to um, The Last of Us, but who knows, maybe somebody <laughs> else has, who knows. But it was something that Neil Druckmann talked about with that, that during playtesting, um, they would have that same kind of extreme of emotions. Some people would be in tears at certain points of the story, and some people would be kind of just shrugging their shoulders. And and, and he said the ones that, um, kind of personally, for him as a, as a writer and a, a director, the ones that the reactions that hurt the most hurt him the most were the ones where people were just shrugging their shoulders and saying, "Okay, so because he feels like he's her dad, he's gonna risk you know <laughs> the end of the world." So that's dumb. So what? Who cares? I don't. Care. Yeah. Was I mean, is that something for you personally, as a as a creative person, as a creative director? That do you react in that way? Do, do you have that kind of that? personal investment or not of course you do um, a personal you know, investment would, but do you have that reaction to that kind of thing yeah i would say that i actually have the opposite experience of neil Druckmann, uh in that the things that 
hurt me the most are the people that are like ludicrously effusive about the game, <laughs> uh, about things that like don't really make any sense, and they're just babbling, and like I mm. get taken by it a little bit, and I'm like at first I'm like oh wow it's so great that this person has a really emotional experience, mm. but you know if you scroll up in their you know tweet timeline or whatever they're like talking you know a few minutes earlier they're talking about how life transforming you know this sandwich was for them uh whatever it is that they're experiencing that there are people that are just like that's who they are like everything yeah. every sandwich they eat is the best sandwich they've had in their yeah. life and your game is just like the next in that line and you know it's it's very human i think to see comments about a thing you worked on and to believe whoever is talking very positively about it must really mm. know what they're talking about and be a sensitive human being it's not always the case. Uh, you know, I think the players that, at least, you know, for us, uh, go through the game and are kind of unmoved emotionally about it, but really mm. enjoy, you know, the mechanics or, you know, the way the controls work or just the, the general conceit. You know, I think that's a totally fine way of looking at it. And I guess my feeling is that, you know, maybe we did a bad job and that we didn't, you know, create a space where these players felt like they could engage with it emotionally. But I, you know, I also think there are people that just want different things from games. And, you know, maybe they're just, you know, not at a place right now where they want that. And they just want a thing that will show them something they've never seen before. And I really like that our game, you know, has more to offer, but doesn't demand it. Yeah. Uh, I feel like there are games that, you know, are, are emotionally compelling that if you aren't willing to engage with it, just have nothing mm, to give mm. you. And I really like that ours is, you know, like kind of a bigger tent. Like it, it embraces players, you know, and, and has, you know, like a, a lot of different things to offer people. And hopefully, you know, there are players, uh, I guess, ideally that come to it thinking like, Oh great. This is the game where I get to be, you know, a shark and then a tentacle monster and all these other things. <laughs> And then find that by the end of it, they've actually had this really emotional experience that they never expected, you know, from a game. Welcome to the Indie by Design podcast halftime show. I'm currently sat here in full cheerleading garb. If you're interested in gaining more insight into game design and game designers, be sure to check out our website, IndieByDesign.net, where you'll find more episodes of the Indie by Design podcast, our book, which is available for purchase, and a lot more besides. If you have suggestions, questions, or feedback on the podcast, you can tweet us at IndieByDesign, or get in touch via facebook.com slash IndieByDesign. If you like what we're doing and have time to leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice, that would be very much appreciated. You can also check out what we're doing over at patreon.com slash indiebydesign and directly help us make the podcast better, as well as bag some additional patron-only content. On to the second part of our discussion with Ian Dallas now, and we pick up with Ian explaining how Giant Sparrow makes the tough call on when to stop polishing and improving, and how to finally say, it's done. Yeah, I mean, on this project it was really tough, because a lot of what you know, we're doing is creating these moments of astonishment. And, mm. you know, that comes from a lot of pieces, but the technical part of it is the very significant piece of that, of this thing that, you know, you've never experienced or seen in a game before that just like happens magically. Uh, and they're difficult magic acts to pull off. Uh, you know, like I was playing, um, uh, Metal Gear Solid Five uh, this weekend, mm. finally, you know, catching up on a bunch of things. And it's amazing how much flickering shadows they have, you know, mm. for a PS4 game. Uh, but mm. that's like, you know, the game starts with a lot of very close quarters, you know, serious discussions between people, you know, where their shadow system presumably is just like not designed for that, right? It's designed for a giant yeah. open world. And for me, that just like totally takes me out of it when I see flickering uh, shadows on everybody's faces. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and for this game, like the magic is quite a bit more subtle. Uh, so, you know, we did spend a lot of time making sure that there weren't, you know, distracting shadows flickering. And in Lewis's story, that was really, really tough because 
the camera is positioned, you know, like 3,000 meters away from everything mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. look kind of fake orthographic because we couldn't do real orthographic for various other technical reasons. Um, and, you know, each of these stories had very specific uh, challenges uh, from a technical standpoint. And in terms of knowing when to cut things off, you know, I think I didn't know. And that's why we spent a lot of time <laughs> working on stories that we ultimately cut, which is not you know, great for the production process. Uh, but we did a good enough job, obviously, that, that ultimately ship, we shipped. But, you know, looking back on it, I think it's a little heartbreaking that the stories that really worked were things that worked from the beginning. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are these other stories that we really wanted to do because they had these elements that seemed perfect and that, you know, there were parts of them that were really great, but were a slog from the very beginning. And there are things that just like the more you worked, the harder it got and the less, you know, good feedback you got. And the other things that just like the curve of their improvement were were very different where like you would spend, you know, it's like 20% of the time and you would have 80% of the story there. And then the last 20% takes 80% of the effort or whatever. <laughs> like it's really hard mm-hmm. to get to the end, but at least you were at something that already felt really good and really compelling. I think also as we got farther along, uh, you know, we, we had a better sense of what it was that we did really well as a game. So like we were talking before, the canonical Finchian moment, right, of marching joyfully to your doom was something that we said, okay, this is the core of the game. So by the end, when we were working on Gregory's story, for example, even though that story had a lot of problems, we knew that it ended in like a very typically Finchian way that we thought we could do well. And so mm-hmm. there was a little bit more courage, uh, you know, that we had in terms of like committing more time and energy to that story where other stories that didn't have a strong ending where we didn't feel like we'd be able to stick the landing, you know, it got cut. Because uh, mm. even though there were other pieces of it that were great, it just wasn't what this game was going to do well. But early on, it was a lot of fishtailing. You know, we did the, like the two stories that we kind of started with, Molly's and Lewis's, you know, the biggest stories that we ultimately did because we realized like, oh, crap, we can't actually do, you know, many of these things. But, you know, we kind of balanced that out, right, with, with some simpler stories in between uh, that did different things. They weren't yeah. all technical tour de forces. Uh, and hopefully they don't feel like tour de forces exactly. I mean, that's part of the magic, too. Like, a magic act doesn't work as well if you can see the magician sweating. Um, like, it's just feel kind of lightweight. Mm. Yeah, and I think that it comes across as a, as a many of them feel like stylistic choices rather than uh, technical choices or rather than, well, you know, budget restrictions or whatever it might be. Like, it feels like they are mixed up because, um, or mixed up, but uh, mixed together because this one is a is deliberately designed to be maybe a bit of a palate cleanser or it's designed to give you a, a moment of levity or whatever it might be. So that, yeah, I think that that certainly um, certainly works in that respect. Um, so I think switch. we're going to switch tacks entirely now. We, we've kind of talked about Edith Finch probably, uh, well, we could probably talk about it for another to death. 30 minutes, but yeah, <laughs> Aha, very good. However, we're going to switch tack completely and talk about some of the, the other stuff that you've, that you've done and that you've experienced and you've kind of had going on over the last uh however many crazy years it's been like the last sort of 10 or so years i guess and one of those things is your time at um usc and we've spoken to uh my writing partner and i john robertson uh we we wrote a book um called independent by design and in that there are various different stories uh about game creation and several of those people that we spoke to um were part of USC's game program at one time or another. We spoke to Richard Lemeshand, who mm-hmm. um, works at USC, and we spoke to um, uh, we spoke to Mark Essen um, of Messhoff, who um, taught at USC as well. And I'm wondering, is there something? Is there some sort of <laughs> kind of some sort of secret sauce, something in the water <laughs> uh, in California that? Because it seems to me, from a, from a very outside and far removed perspective, you know, a few thousand miles that what goes on at USC seems to be very important, but very um, of very high calibre and very high quality. I mean, is that, is there something 
different do you feel that that you got from being there that uh, I don't know that you perhaps couldn't have got from somewhere else? Uh, it's hard for me to say because I feel you like you weren't anywhere I, else, right? That's a... yeah, like I I didn't go anywhere else, and I feel like I got a whole lot out of USC. Um, to be honest, like I feel like it was really really helpful to have time to not be working at a job. Like I hadn't really mm. appreciated how valuable it was just to have like the free headspace to mm. go back to fundamentals and like teach myself the 3D modeling tool and you know, basic programming and, and all of those things. And, you know, I think there were relationships I had with professors like uh, Mark Bolas, who was my professor and advisor, who, you know, part of being um, like I had this fellowship at USC and part of the fellowship was that every week I would have to meet with my advisor. And Mark Bolas uh, asked me every week to come up with a new prototype for, you know, like this little game mechanic. And that's, you know, where the Unfinished Swan came out of was mm. – weeks doing these like crappy little prototypes and then talking about them and, and thinking about those things. And and I think for me, I took a lot from the way that uh, Mark approached design, kind of just the general thinking process that goes into that, mm. how you uh, tackle the unknown. So like one of the things I started doing, you know, in a very concrete way at USC uh, was to take three by five note cards and just draw little pictures on them of mm. like a little moment or mechanic or idea and then put those up on a board. And for me, you know, I think there's something about like just the way the human brain works that you can only, you know, hold five to seven things in your head at, at any mm. given time. And mm -hmm. so having like these little pictograms uh, was a way to sort of distribute that cognitive load and think about things a little bit differently. And that's still the way that, uh, you know, when we do stories uh, for Edith Finch, like I would just make a whole bunch of these little things and then you know you kind of think about them in a way like it gets it out of your head uh and that was something that i don't think anyone necessarily taught me at usc but you know in approaching design critically and kind of thinking about thinking uh that mm -hmm. was a tool that i came up with that i still find really useful uh, i think also at usc there's you know because there were some people that went there Early on, and because it was one of the first programs um, at all, uh, there's sort of a long tail of that of people being like, "Oh, there's like some good folks that came out of USC. Mm -hmm. I too mm -hmm. shall go to USC," <laughs> uh, and it's sort of like it's this kind of self-perpetuating machine. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of good work that continues to come out of USC, but it's you know by no means the only place uh, that good work can be done. And I don't really know enough about the other programs that exist now uh, to be able to say, you know, what, what would be better for what or, or if you're mm, mm. really so unique these days. But certainly when I was there, it was, you know, one of the two or three programs in the country or the world, uh, you know, that was really looking at games um, from a critical uh, perspective. Yeah. Is that, do you have any, um, do you have any kind of contact with that kind of world of, academia anymore is that do you, I don't know if it's a if it's a normal thing to have um students kind of submit things to uh, to people yeah. like you guys do you do you in contact with that sort of thing I do occasionally get asked to like advise on master's thesis uh okay. projects so I'll come back or like I was back a couple of weeks ago for a talk uh with a bunch of other USC alums uh for the um, there's a video series called The Game Makers that interviewed a bunch of game developers, including a number from USC. Uh, mm -hmm. Back for that, and so yeah, I mean, I do get get drawn back in uh, periodically, and I'm still friends with you know a lot of those folks, like Richard, for example. Mm -hmm. And is there is there a um, kind of outside of outside of that community? How how do you guys kind of interact with other developers? Is there, we've spoken to some people who are very closely involved, very tight knit with the other developers in a, in a, in a very geographical area. Um, and sometimes that tends to be in some of the European countries that we've spoken to developers from who don't have maybe the biggest gaming scenes at the moment. And so they are sort of naturally more drawn together because they're all doing a similar thing. Um, but then equally, we've spoken to some developers who somebody has established as somebody like introversion software who don't really have a great deal. Like, they, you know, they speak to other developers, of course, but they don't have a great deal 
to do with other developers. Like, where does where I mean, does Giant Sparrow yeah. sit in that? Like, introversion that that does not seem helpful. <laughs> uh, <that Christmas laughs> it's almost deliberate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a little, a little gone. Um, yeah, I think I myself, you know, I'm like sort of by nature a little more of a hermit uh, than than most folks. So mm. you know, I'm not that actively involved uh, in the local LA group, but. I think Glitch City has been pretty significant uh, as like a co-working space that people get together yeah. and that, you know, just sort of people are constellated around um, and have a, a meeting place to go. And Indiecade uh, is also a pretty mm-hmm. good place to see that's historically been in Culver City. I think this past year is in downtown L.A. Um, but, uh, yeah, people kind of orient around that. And it's just, you know, like a small enough group of people historically that uh, there's just a lot of you know, friends that would get together and, you know, like Baruch Pfeiffer is having a party at his house, uh, you know, to celebrate just for that. And then, you know, a bunch of people will show up um, to hang out. And but yeah, in terms of like the sort of more official things, uh, you know, I think the Glitch City has a co-working space and, you know, festivals uh, like Indiecade are a place that they bring people together. And then USC, you know, just like events mm. go on and people will give talks or whatever. And uh, yeah. Just, hmm. I think Twitter, you know, as much as anything, probably is the place that, uh, that people <laughs> congregate around, even, you know, when they're in the same geographical area. Uh, yeah. It's surprising how how much game development uh, sort of communication has migrated uh, hmm. in the last couple of years. There's probably there's a there's a gold mine in there somewhere. I imagine if somebody went through and collated all of the collective game design wisdom that's been put out on Twitter, there's, there's enough to fill several books. I would imagine, but uh, it's it's quite a transient thing, I guess. You kind of you tweet, and although it does stay there forever, theoretically, you know, it's it's kind of it's you know yesterday's news pretty quickly. But um, uh, the kind of moving on to um, how you guys work in terms of your your development stages your pre-production and and post-production and do you i don't know if you if you're a big enough studio or if you like to take time out from when you're developing one game to start working on ideas for another but do you have a kind of a method of as you're wrapping up one game you start to think about the next or or like like what do you do when you finish a game do you go on a long like vacation do you give yourself some some headroom how do you actually sort of deal with that end of a end of a development cycle um, uh, yeah well we've only had the the two experiences mm, so far mm. right of after unfinished swan and, and after what remains of Edith finch and mm. you know i think as a studio it's not really a like i don't think of it as a business uh as much as i think about it as just kind of more like a band like a group mm-hmm. of people that get together to make this thing and uh then disperse so mm. After the Unfinished Swan, you know, I think at our peak, we were maybe around 12 or 13 people and then uh, full time. And then by the end of it, you know, we were down to three. I think we were starting Edith Finch and then mm-hmm. amped up from there. And so I think, mm. you know, we'll probably have a similar uh, roll off and ramp up. Uh, like now we're down to five people uh, from a peak of around 15 or 16. And, mm. you know, I'm not quite sure what, what that number will look like, but I think uh, one of the lessons from Edith Finch for me is that, you know, when we're starting to make these things, uh, we just have no idea what we're really doing. And <laughs> it's difficult to add people early on in that process because they want to know what to work on. And <laughs> I want to tell them, like, I don't want to have them doing things that are just going to get thrown out. Uh, so, you know, I think with, Edith Finch, there was a lot of pressure from Sony to, you know, try to get it done, you know, within, you know, like a certain calendar period, even mm-hmm. if it meant, you know, spending a little bit more, uh, you know, to bring in more people. And that seems like a fine thing. And then, you know, unfortunately, like a year or two into it, we just still didn't know what we were doing. Uh, <laughs> but we had all these other people around that, you know, needed stuff to do. And so that just took a lot of time to... Mm. And, and come up with tasks and, and so I think the next time around uh, we'll have a smaller team for a longer period uh, mm. and you know even when we think we know what we're doing uh, by the time it gets to like a real prototype stage uh, and, and we can start to play with it ourselves there's just a lot of things to discover 
and, you know, you realize like, oh, we actually need, you know, somebody full time to do, you know, fluid effects or whatever it is that like, this next game is, is going to require. Mm. Uh, so I think it's, it's very uh, iterative, I guess, and exploratory, uh, maybe is a better word in the beginning of, you know, starting from uh, a very specific feeling, uh, you know, like in, in Edith Finch, it was the sublime horror of nature. And mm. so we initially worked on things like scuba diving prototypes and what it felt like to be in the middle of a dark forest. Uh, mm. And, you know, the whole format of short stories and, and all that kind of grew out of seeing what these little prototypes felt like. So it's kind of making things and then seeing just like how that feels to you uh, as a player uh, and, and using types mm. as kind of ways to think about uh, these ideas a little better. And, and so is that how it starts or is that how it has started each time? And, and perhaps if you have already started working on your new thing, is that how it's kind of translated across or ported across that you start with that central idea? Because as you were talking, then I was thinking, oh, it sounds a bit like it's, like the analogy of a of a band that you mentioned previously, that it kind of sounds like you're all just sort of um, jamming. But is it actually that you start with quite a fixed idea as to what it is you're trying to achieve, and then things come out from that central point? Yeah, I, I think we start with a feeling. Like we start with hmm. kind of an emotional touchstone, uh, and you know, like in the unfinished one, it was more about like awe and wonder. Like that actually came from the prototype in a way. Like it was. This, hmm mechanical prototype we had of throwing paint in a white landscape and they're just like what does that feel like you know what is it and for me it was like what does it feel like to be you know confronted with the unknown like how do you make something that is about the experience of the unknown uh and so yeah when we start with just a very simple feeling um like for the next game you know it's about the way that animals move and like what does it feel like to look at an animal moving, like why is that compelling, you know, in kind of a similar way to watching a campfire that you can just mm -hmm. endlessly watch this thing. And there's something that is very primal and human and mysterious, but like I can feel it. I know it's there, but I can't explain it. And I don't really know how to evoke it. Uh, mm. That's kind of the jumping off point um, for the next project is just kind of thinking about what is this feeling um, like, E.O. Wilson talks about it as biophilia, as mm -hmm. kind of innate connection that humans have uh, for animals that is mysterious. Like other animals don't seem to have it. Uh, why do we have it? Like it's something, you know, that's kind of unknown, but also it's right there. Like you can, you can feel it. Uh, mm. so that's kind of, yeah, the way these things work is we start from something that's powerful and a little mysterious to us. And then, you know, we just, explore that um until somebody tells us to stop <laughs> yeah see that's the the benefit of having a um, the strict structure of a, <laughs> of a publisher's uh timeline who's uh, somebody has to say look guys come on you really have to actually make a game now you can't just keep can't just yeah, keep and, uh experimenting and i think you know we too also feel like okay this is you know there's a, a point at which you know you've, you've spent enough time uh, you know, cogitating about something, and it is really mm -hmm. nice. And, and you do learn more too, I think, in, in trying to actually make these expressions of them and, and refine them. And uh, I think you know, we're all really happy to be done with it at the end of the day, and to have something that you know we can look back on as as kind of a finished piece of work, and not just mm -hmm. you know endless scribblings. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there are? There doesn't sound like there's a great deal of connection between each project but do you feel internally do you feel like you are, are kind of be it from a, a technical standpoint or even just a developmental milestone standpoint do you feel like there are lessons that you you take from each project that you can point to and say well you know this happened on Unfinished Swan or now this happened on Edith Finch and so we are either going to replicate that or we're going to do our best to avoid that like does it work in that kind of in that tangible way or is it is it more kind of uh, abstract and sort of just 
uh, undefined or ill-defined? Like, is there a, a thing you can point to and say, yeah, that this is what we're learning, or is it just, well, this is a completely new game, <laughs> completely new ideas, therefore, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, it, it's a slightly complicated answer, but, you know, I think that what I am personally really interested in is learning and hmm. in trying new things and in creating experiences that people have never had before. So, you know, the, the sort of core through line is that everything is constantly changing. Uh, you know, so the similarity is the difference, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. you know, between mm-hmm. each of the projects. But I think also in looking at the way that Edith Finch developed and, and you know, certainly the way that it looks now in its final form, uh, there are a lot of themes and elements that recur uh, unintentionally. The mm. you know, I think the most prominent one for me would be the the theme of the perils of the imagination, uh, which is mm. you know, very front and center in Unfinished Swan and is you know kind of a little bit under the surface, but very much there. Also in Edith Finch, not something that you know I ever thought about when starting the project, uh, but it's just that's something that really interests me and mm. you know finds its way in. Uh, you know I think also my interest in books and what it feels like to read a book, uh, the way that turning a page, you know, is this entirely mm. new world and, you know, place for, you know, new things to happen. Uh, and, you know, looking at like our bookshelf of all the references from The Unfinished Swan, uh, you know, I realized like, well, there are a lot of those that actually could be references for Edith Finch as well. Uh, you know, mm. Alice in Wonderland or Shel Silverstein um, or Edward Gorey. And so, you know, I think mm. there's a... A level of like at the level of references, at least a lot of the same kind of tonal uh, and stylistic uh, things we look to are somewhat similar uh, across the the games that we've made. Um, but yeah, hopes mm. they all feel pretty different, and from a technical standpoint, you know, are trying different things because that you know is really a big part of to me what is interesting about games is the kind of technical aspects of it and the way that you know the controls you know can change and the way that it's not just uh you know like the same wine poured into new skins or whatever that it's like holy experience that you can create every time and i think a lot of games don't bother with that like they're just not interested but you know that's something that that is really interesting to me uh creating Mm. something out of whole cloth that feels uh brand new yeah, I can't. I can't really imagine um, that I'm going to be hearing too many announcements about what remains of Edith Finch two or the <laughs> or the finished Swan or anything like that. I, th- I think it might be. I can see that you guys are going to be doing something quite new um, each Although time. We do talk about uh, the Finch Pets DLC project <laughs> now and again. So who knows? That that might, might see the light of day. I, I actually, I, when you were mentioning earlier about the kind of the ideas that didn't make it into the game, I, I was thinking like that would make for a great kind of director's cut version of the game that has all of the unfinished prototypes. That would would be a nice fit with the unfinished Swan as well because it's kind yeah. of like his stuff that wasn't quite finished. So yeah, it's kind of a you know I guess there's more um, in very brutal uh, commercial terms. There's more mileage there if you wanted to kind of get more more uh, more out of the game in that sense. But it's I mean, is that something that you guys have, that people ask you about that? Like they want, oh, I want more stories in this world. Is that something that you've had to field any questions on at any point about, you know, you could just kind of build an extension on the house and just bolt a few more, do another branch of the family tree. Like, is that something that's come up at any point? Uh, Yeah, I mean, people certainly do, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people say, hey, I wish this game was longer. You know, like I wish that there were more stories in this universe. Um, I mean, of course, part of the magic on our side is that, you know, all these stories are really just as long as we feel like we can get away with before it becomes the least bit tedious. So if players like, mm-hmm. leave it feeling like, man, I wish that was a lot longer, like we mm. are secretly cackling to ourselves knowing that like any longer and you would, you know, get jaded about it. And it's kind of like, oh, we yeah. got out just at the right time. Uh, but no, I mean, I think down the road, uh, there's probably like it, it wouldn't be as simple as just, you know, opening a basement, like a sub basement or something <laughs> uh, in the house. But, mm. you know, in terms of 
a collection of short stories, perhaps dealing with, you know, some of these same characters or, you know, an entirely mm, different mm. branch of the family or even something, you know, like uh, as silly as it is, you know, like a, a collection of stories about the pets of the Finches, uh, mm-hmm. you know, could be something that, you know, we, we want to explore. And, and one of the ideas that we actually had uh, for, for this game was that we would bring in guest developers to do some of the stories and that, okay, try yeah. To, yeah. you know, add some more variety that way. So, you know, it's not Mm. impossible, but I think as a studio, we are very oriented around, you know, doing new things. So if we did something, you know, more in this world, you know, it would have to be something very new and not just, you know, an extension of, of what's already there. For more on games and game creators, visit IndieByDesign.net. Follow IndieByDesign on Twitter, Facebook and on YouTube, where you'll also find a full walkthrough of what remains of Edith Finch. Do consider nipping over to Patreon.com slash IndieByDesign to see what we have going on over there and to bag yourself some additional podcast content, as well as to get the warm, fuzzy glow of helping us make this podcast even better. Indie by Design podcast episodes are released every Wednesday, and we hope to have you back here next week. The music used in this episode is owned and provided by Ben Prunty. <laughs>